Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl in the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 102, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, November the 19th, 2021. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before. <laughs> this is faith-seeking understanding, and I'm your host, John Green, that I've certainly gone through that experience in my own life of feeling that same way, that, that, that I'm just utterly alone in the world with no hope and no future. Um, it, it, it's a terrible feeling. And so David is, is not hesitant to write that down, nor is the Lord hesitant to have that in the the Bible as part of the Psalter. And so we need not be afraid of that emotion as well. We all depend on him at the end of the day. We cry, make that cry to him, not to one another. And so it's important that we keep that in mind and that we, we're able to pour out our hearts to the Lord, whatever we're feeling at that time. It's important that that we keep that kind of communication in, in our relationship with him. In the um, first lesson today is First Maccabees from chapter 4, verses 36 to 59, and then also in Revelation 22, 6 to 13, and then Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 10 through 20. Um, we will be moving on, by the way, <laughs> from the book of the Maccabees, um, Today, today will be the last day that we spend in the book of the Maccabees. So just giving you a heads up on that. Well, here we go with the Maccabees thing. Judas Maccabeus and his brothers said, See, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. So all the army assembled and went up to Mount Zion. Then they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, and the gates burned. In the courts they saw bushes sprung up as in a thicket or as one on, as on one of the mountains. They also saw the chambers of the priests in ruins. Then they tore their clothes and mourned with great lamentation. They sprinkled themselves with ashes and fell face down to the ground. And when the signal was given with the trumpets, they cried out to heaven. It would have sounded a lot like that Psalm 102, that passage that I read for you a little bit ago. It would have sounded a lot like that. You can just see, the, the imagine what it would feel like to come into Jerusalem and see the temple utterly desolate and in ruins. Um, it, it like a ghost town almost is what it sounds like. Judas detailed men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the sanctuary. In other words, I've still got to deal with the 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 battle is not yet done, but we we're able to get back in Jerusalem. And the important thing is this. And so he detailed some to be out there while they took care of the sanctuary. He chose blameless priests devoted to the law, and they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. And you could say, well, we mean he chose blameless priests. Weren't all priests that way? Well, they're not all that way today. And so, no, they're not. There are some priests who are perfectly, priests, pastors, whatever, who are perfectly willing to compromise with the world and who are willing to accept almost anything for the hope of peace and prosperity. And so it was the same in that day. They deliberated about what to do <coughs> with the altar of burnt offering, which had been profaned. And they thought it best to tear it down. 
so that it would not be a lasting shame to them that the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the Temple Hill until a prophet should come tell them what to do with it. A prophet could have been somebody like um, a sage, like a, a scribe, somebody who was who was skilled in interpreting the law. Could have been the rabbis. The rabbis are not priests, by the way. They're, that's a totally different office. And so they're teachers of the law. They're the ones who have determined sort of the application of the law, how to understand it. They're the ones who wrote all the Targums, all the Gemara, all the Midrash. That, that's not priests. Priests have a sacerdotal function, which means that they serve a purpose in the temple. But, but they typically were not biblical scholars as well. So they, they left it there, left these stones there because they weren't certain that's what should be done about them, that should it have been torn down and rebuilt or not. So they left these for somebody else to come along and tell them what to do with it. Then they took unhewn stones, as the law directs, and built a new altar like the former one, which means those, those stones hadn't been cut, so they hadn't been touched by human hands. They were exactly the way God made them because it was his altar. <clears throat> then they rebuilt the sanctuary in the interior of the temple and consecrated the courts. They made new holy vessels and brought the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table into the temple. Then they offered incense on the altar and lit the lamps on the lampstand, and these gave light in the temple. They placed the bread on the table and hung up the curtains. Thus they finished all the work that they had undertaken. And, and one of the highlights of this, we're, we're getting ready to move into this eight-day celebration, which is Hanukkah. Uh, one of the things that we're not told about here is is that they, they had a desperate uh, need for oil, and they... they that the oil lasted longer than it should have in the same way that uh, in Elijah's time, the oil in the cruet and the flour for the, uh, the cakes that the, that the widow and uh, Zarephath was making for him uh, continued. And so they had a continual flow of oil just as in the days of Elijah. So early in the morning on the 25th day of the ninth month, which is the month of Kislev, in the 148th year, they rose and offered sacrifice as the law directs on the new altar of burnt offering that they had built. So they consecrated it at the very season and on the very day that the Gentiles had profaned it. It was dedicated with songs and harps and lutes and cymbals. All the people fell on their faces and worshipped and blessed heaven who had prospered them. So they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days and joyfully offered burnt offerings. They offered a sacrifice for well-being and a thanksgiving offering. They decorated the front of the temple with golden crowns and small shields. They restored the gates and the chambers for the priests and fitted them with the doors. There was a very great joy among the people and the disgrace brought by the Gentiles was removed. Then Judas and his brothers and all the assembly of Israel determined that every year at that season the days of dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness for eight days, beginning with the 25th day of the month of Kislev. The, so the, that's the inauguration of the uh, festival we know today as Hanukkah. It was the restoration of the temple, not the rebuilding of the temple, but the restoration of the temple in the times of the Maccabees after it had been profaned by the Gentiles. So the, it's, it's an interesting thing with Jewish history that they will typically um, cite that this, this happened at this or that date, and, and they'll find historical connections between those things. So, so people would have conceived at Rosh Hashanah, for instance, Rachel and Sarah, they say, would have conceived at um, Rosh Hashanah because the, um, that would have been when the time when the Lord would have answered those prayers, that there are other things that, that fall at time of festivals. And in this particular case, the 25th day of Kislev, they say was the day that the tabernacle 
was finished in the time of Moses in the wilderness, but it wasn't dedicated until later. Uh, and so this sort of restored the 25th day of Kislev, the fact that the, the, the temple altar was rededicated on that day. They, they see these connections between these dates, and, and so the, the 25th Kislev, which should have been the day that the original tabernacle was, was dedicated, now is sort of redeemed by this rededication of the temple in the time of the Maccabees. In the gospel today, Jesus is continuing to talk about the value of children and how, what, it, what it means for us to, to be great in the kingdom of heaven, which is to humble ourselves like little children. And, and it's, we need to be careful about children. That's the reason we've always taken children's ministry seriously wherever I've been anyway. Um, and that is we have a deep responsibility to the Lord for the rearing and admonition of those children in, in the ways of God and in, in the Word. Um, when, when we baptize an infant in, in the Anglican tradition, one of the things we do is, as a congregation, we, we actually verbally um, take responsibility that we'll do everything in our power not to put any impediments between that child and, and his, knowing the, his or her knowing the Lord. And so we take a vow as a congregation at the time of the baptism, that we will ensure that this person has every opportunity to step into the vows that were made for them at baptism for themselves at a later date whenever confirmation comes. It's, it's the same kind of thing as as the connection between circumcision and... Um, um, what am I trying to say? The, the, uh, when, it, when a child becomes of age in, in Judaism... Um, and so it's, it's an important connection between the two. When, when the circumcision is made on the eighth day, the child's inaugurated and brought into the, to the covenant community, but, but it's under the care of his parents, his or her parents, until such time as um, they can take responsibility for the law for themselves. And so it's an important responsibility that the parents, and in our case, the whole congregation take on to make sure that, that the vows that are made for this child at its baptism are... are um, affirmed at a later date. And that, and that includes education, but it can also include things like discipline whenever there's a problem. And so Jesus says, don't despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. So they're angels. Um, it, there's, it sounds like there's, there are angels who are given over to protecting and watching over children. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is with the will of my. So it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's they're that important. Is what Jesus is saying. They're, they're as important as as in the analogy that he uses about the shepherd who has lost a sheep and goes and restores that one. And, and surely you've lost something in your life, and and then you found that thing or that person, and then you celebrate it over that in a way that maybe you didn't celebrate over the, all the other things in your life because there's something different about one that's been lost and gone astray. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's an interesting way of looking at it. It's certainly, I had a, uh, an upset at certain points in the church here in Asheville. I had a, a problem with a with a treasurer of the church it's a long story 
but he was horribly in the wrong and everybody knew it. Um, and so I, I fired him as the treasurer and somebody came to me and said, John, you need to teach us how to turn the other cheek. I said, no, as a pastor, I need to teach you how to read the scriptures. Because what it says in Matthew 5 is, if a wicked man strikes you on the cheek, then give him your other cheek. But here it says, if a brother sins against you, then you're to confront that sin. And then you're to escalate it by taking two or three others. And if that's not enough, then you take it to the entire church to let them decide the matter. And so um, my, my point was with that, that I can treat him like a wicked man, but he can't be the treasurer. If you want me to treat him like a wicked man, I'm willing to do it and turn the other cheek, but he can't be the treasurer. But it, but what I did, I think, is, is actually the more loving and charitable way of dealing with it, which is I treated him like a brother. And I confronted the sin, and the church confronted the sin, and then we had to fire him as a treasurer. And so and then, so we had to kind of put him out from that because he wouldn't repent. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So does that mean that we bind God because two of us agree on something? Does that mean he's bound to do whatever it is that we ask him to do? I don't think that was Jesus' point at all. Uh, I think that because we can pray for a great many things that we could agree that we would both really like to have. But, but that doesn't mean that thing would be good for us. And so we need to be careful about the way we pray, actually. Because we, we want to be praying in accordance with God's will, and we want to be able to do that in order that we might see more of our prayers answered. We need to leave more things just to him to decide rather than telling him how these things need to be done. In the Revelation passage, John says, He, the angel, said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So this is the one speaking from the throne now. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Because these things are too wonderful. It's sort of the way of looking at these things are too wonderful for me. But he, the angel, said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. In other words, don't worship anything else. I, I'm no better than you. I'm different, but I'm no better than you. I'm a fellow servant of the Lord. We each have our own lane. We need to stay in our own lanes. But, but we, uh, while you might want to worship me, you must not do that. And we can't worship human beings either. We can't look to somebody else in, in the place of God, whether that be a pastor, a teacher, or anybody else. We've got to make sure that, that we worship God and worship him alone. And there's temptations always to do that. And if you saw an angel, it would be a great temptation to worship that angel. C.S. Lewis says that, um, that the, the reality is we've never met a mere mortal even. And if we saw the truth about those people who are around us, if we could see them the way God sees them, then, then in some cases we would be tempted to fall down and worship people who are around us, or we should recoil in horror at, the, at their demonic nature. And so it's, it's always a temptation to do that, and certainly you see that in certain places where, where people will absolutely worship the pastor, worship the preacher. I, I certainly know people who do that with respect to popular television preachers, that, that if you say anything that, that would cast negative light on them or their teachings— then you're immediately discarded and assumed to be some sort of a heretic because, well, look at the crowds these people draw. Well, there may be a different reason— <laughs> 
that they're drawing those crowds. And we need to be careful about blessing things or, or, or believing something's blessed simply based on the, the response the world gives to that person. And then he, the angel, said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. In other words, make it known. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. In other words, you can put it out there, but it's not going to change things um, in the sense that everybody's not going to come to believe this and to act in accord with their belief that these things are trustworthy and true. Put it out there, certainly. Do that, but but not with the belief that you're going to save the whole world because that's just not how it's going to go. And then ultimately, again, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and so judgment is real. So what we need to do and how we, how do we assimilate these three lessons into our lives has to do with worshiping God and worshiping Him alone. You know, it's got to do with prayer, I believe. It's got to do with coming before the throne of God with thanksgiving and also with petition. It has to do with with walking in, before Him in holiness and righteousness. It has to do with, with dealing with sin in our own lives, the way Jesus said to, as an eye for an eye kind of metaphor. But then it's also dealing with sin in the body of Christ. It's dealing with that issue of when brothers sin against brothers. It's dealing with the issue that Judas Maccabeus had to deal with is, is what priests can I trust? And, and the acknowledgement is I can't trust them all. And so how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that in our midst? How do we walk this out knowing that ultimately wheat and tares controls everything? And so we can deal with, with obvious sin in the midst of the church, but, but we, what we can't do then is to, to believe that person is um, evil. So we can confront the sin and then allow God to deal with the sinner. And that's the important way of dealing with almost everything, in fact, in our interpersonal conflicts.